You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined by our first non-powerlifting or powerlifting coach um, guest. Uh, and this is Tim Gabbett. I'm gonna, Tim, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Um, I'm bringing Tim on here to talk about the acute chronic work ratio, which I actually use as a monitoring tool uh, for my team of lifters. Um, and I'll let you introduce yourself, Tim. And uh, I just kind of want to hear you talk about the acute chronic work ratio, where, where you got the idea from, what your research says. And I want you to kind of go into detail on what it is and also what it isn't, because I think that gets um, confused sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, Kevin. Um, so I'm a, I'm a performance consultant. I um, work with a lot of different sports. And, and as you say, this is uh, the first time I've had a, a chance to, to talk about load as it relates to um, powerlifting. So it's, it's kind of a, a first for both of us. But what I, what I think most of your listeners will find is, is that the concepts that we're talking about in terms of load and in terms of capacity and, and in terms of building building capacity, um, the concepts apply across a lot of different sports and a lot of different fields, a lot of different domains. So whether we're talking about track and field or whether we're talking about basketball or whether we're talking about powerlifting, so we're talking about the sport domain or whether we're talking about dancing or the circus, or whether we're talking about military applications, uh, the, this concept of building to higher, higher chronic workloads and getting there as safely as possible is is something that that applies across a lot of different domains. Um, so you you brought up you brought up the acute acute to chronic uh, workload ratio, and, and that's. That's uh, something that a lot of people are interested in. Um, essentially, what the acute chronic workload ratio does is it allows us to progress workloads. We, we all know the concept of progressive overload. Um, you need to to progressively have your have your load slightly higher than your capacity to handle that load. And if if it's slightly, if your load is slightly higher than your capacity to handle load, then that's how you get better. Uh, but if if that load is much greater than your capacity to handle load, your load capacity, then that's that's when the tissue um, can't handle that load and, and you get injuries. You know, your athletes break. So so what the acute chronic workload ratio does is is takes that principle of progressive overload and actually allows us to do something with it. Um, the principle of progressive overload is great, but it's it's no good if we can't actually use it in practice. So that's that's the, the essential foundation of the acute chronic workload ratio is it, it, it looks at your capacity to handle load and it also looks at the load that you're applying at this point in time. So the way that we, we do that is through, through looking at acute and a chronic loads. So when we, when we talk about um, acute load, it's, it's the load that you've and, – and I'll bring it back to a powerlifting example. It's the load that you lift in a very 
short period of time. So it could be as, as short as, as one training session or it could be as long as, say, a week. Acute load is a very short training stimulus and it's, it's reflective of fatigue, the fatigue that comes with training. Now, you, you need to get a little bit of fatigue in order to get better. Um, we, we can't get better unless we, we develop a certain amount of fatigue and, and, of course, the right fatigue to adapt correctly. Um, what we can also look at in terms of load is the load that you've performed over a longer period of time, and we call that chronic load. And chronic load could be anything from from three to six weeks, for example. We call that, it's analogous to fitness. So it's the fitness effect that comes with training. So acute load is the fatigue effect. Chronic load is the fitness effect. Um, acute load is a short period of time. Chronic load is, is the load that you've done over a longer period of time. Um, and all, all we do is, is we want to try and, and build our chronic load. Our chronic load is like our capacity to handle load. And the acute load is the load at any, any given point in time, in a short period of time. So when, when you put your acute load in relation to your chronic load, you're looking at the fatigue effect relative to the fitness that you've developed. And that's where we've come up with the acute chronic workload ratio. Um, it essentially looks at how much fatigue have you developed in a short period of time relative to what you've been prepared for. So what is the load that you've done now relative to what you've been prepared for? So I'll, I'll use a, a, a powerlifting example. If you have someone who's new to the sport and hasn't lifted a lot, They've, they haven't trained a lot over a, over a long period of time, so the chronic load is low. And then they come into their first, their first powerlifting session and they overdo it. They, they either put too much weight on the bar or they do too much volume, too much intensity. Um, then potentially they wake up really sore for the next few days or um, in, in, a, in a worst case scenario, they get injured because their load that they've applied their acute load far exceeds their capacity or their chronic load, their ability to handle load. Um, we can do the exact same thing in reverse, though, if you have a, an athlete who has built their chronic load over a long period of time and then you, you unload them leading into an event. So you just take a little bit of that load away, then what that, what that does is freshens that athlete up They've de developed their capacity, plus they've unloaded. So they can go into their event on the weekend um, feeling really strong, really fit, uh, but also fresh and ready to perform. So this is that's the benefit of the acute chronic ratio. When it's above one, it indicates that you're, you're building load. If it's far above one, then that indicates that you're probably in a, an increased state of fatigue. If it's below one, then you're... you're Potentially, if your chronic load is high, then you're you're um, you're in a fresh state and ready to perform. So it gives you an idea of of how to progress and how to regress loads, how to load your athlete, and, and also how to unload them. Do you do you think there's a benefit to going way above one, or do you think it just over time, as long as you're stressing that baseline, even if it's a, just a a small amount, that it can yield um, those performance increases? Well, like, like many um, many questions about load and, and the acute chronic ratio is just one example where we, we kind of go, well, it depends. Um, and it depends on a whole heap of factors. So if, 
if you have a, a severely untrained athlete who, who let's say they've, they've had a, a catastrophic injury and, and they've been in bed for a year, then, then taking them well above one is, is potentially not the best idea um, because um, that spike in workload is, is likely going to be far greater than what they can handle. But, but we also know that not all athletes break when you spike workloads, when you rapidly increase workloads. Some are more robust than others. Um, so then we have to consider, well, well, what is it that makes one athlete more robust than another? And, and what we're talking about there is, is moderators of this load capacity relationship. So you can, you can have someone who's really strong, has a great training history, um, has, a, has a low injury history. They're not super young or super old, so they're sort of in the middle of their career. Um, those athletes, you'll probably find that you can increase a lot faster. You can increase the ratio a lot faster, and it doesn't have to be very minute increases in load. You, you might you might be able to to ramp them up a little quicker. Whereas if you have a novice who doesn't have a training history or has a long injury history or is really young, so is susceptible to certain types of injuries, or is really old who might be susceptible to other types of injuries, then you might be more conservative in your approach. So the number is. It, it, it's just it's just a number that helps inform to make your decisions, but it, it's not making the decisions for you. You still have to use your use the art of coaching and and get to know your athletes to make sure that you're you're actually using that number correctly. I've actually what you mentioned there. I've actually noticed that with um, some of my more elite lifters, I can actually push those lifts, the total load. So I keep a. Uh, a measurement over my chronic workload is over four weeks. My acute is over seven days. So I can actually push those seven day workloads to a ratio up to, you know, 1.3, 1.4, and they handle it extremely well. Um, I, you know, and to get there, what I'll do is I'll basically just kind of ease into it. So we might try, you know, one week at like 1.1 and then we'll, we'll gradually ramp up that baseline over time. Like based off of what I see training's going well, let's add a little bit more training's going well. Let's add a little bit more. And with a lot of the newer lifters, um, what I've noticed is they just don't get there. Like they get, you can tell like performance starts dropping, like, you know, technique and strength and those types of things start, um, going by the wayside towards the end of the week. Um, and from there, we'll do a lighter week, kind of unload them a little bit. So I have this kind of like push hard, pull back hard uh, mentality when I'm, when I'm using it. And I've, I've noticed exactly what you're talking about. And I think like some of the things with the elite lifters more so than some of the other ones is they're more highly skilled. So like there's less deviation in what they're actually doing um, in the lifts. And there's just like more control there. I think psychologically, they're in a better place when they're training. They don't get nervous of the weights. They... Uh, handle outside noise a little bit better, like with their nutrition and sleep and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All that makes perfect sense to me. It's, uh, um, you know, and, and really, really what you're talking about there is, is, um, how, how the art of coaching, you know, these are things that, that you can see through, through years of doing it, through years of coaching, you can see, you can see that. And, um, you know, the, the art of knowing when to push and when to pull back a little bit, that's exactly what training is about. Um, sometimes you have to push and, and the reality is you don't know 
for sure when an athlete's going to break until they break. Um, that's that's the sad reality. We can't we can't predict it with any real accuracy. But there are little warning signs, and and some of those signs you've just described. So the technique tends to go off a little bit. Um, you, you tend to read some body language cues. Uh, you have a conversation with your athlete, and they say, "Look, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling really sore, or I'm I'm stressed, or I'm not sleeping as well as I usually am." There's a little sign that um, okay. The, the health factors associated with load capacity are starting to are starting to track down a little bit. So, so your ability to handle load, your capacity at any point in time, will change from day to day. What you can handle today could be quite different from what you can handle tomorrow in two days' time. Not not necessarily because you've lost strength. You've lost capacity, but you've you've your capacity has changed on the back of these health factors. So if you push forward on a lever, you manage to increase recovery. You you manage to increase um, sleep, or you decrease the stress. You you pull back or push forward on certain levers, then you can you can actually change the capacity at any point in time. Um, so, so that's kind of what what you did, what you're doing with it. You, you're just kind of um, if you can't change the load, you, you're not just ramping up load all the time. You're just pulling back or pushing forward on these health these health levers to try and change capacity as well. Um, so that's that's an important part of the process. That that when we're increasing load, if we're talking about progressive overload and we're talking about the acute chronic ratio, uh, that's not the only thing that we look at. Um, we don't just look at one number and go, well, this is, you know, this is fine, he's in the sweet spot or whatever. Um, you, you still have to take into account, well, we've loaded him, is he tolerating that load? If he's tolerating it, then we can keep pushing. We can go back again and we can push him hard again, recover, push hard again. And that's probably what you're describing with your more experienced lifters. And then on the other hand, if you load and then your athlete isn't handling that load, then you might have to pull back a little bit. So you might have to you either pull back on the load and give a bit more recovery, or you you try and find other other one of those levers to pull to try and allow them to handle that load again at a certain point in time. But um, every person will respond differently to to the, the certain external load, and and that's the art as much of the science of coaching. So one of the uh, like monitoring tools that I use for the external factors. So when my lifters come in, they have this readiness number that they put in. So it's one, a one through five scale, three is normal, two is fatigued, one's very fatigued, four is excited, five's very excited. Um, yeah. I don't like bringing attention to like, oh, maybe I haven't slept enough. Maybe I haven't eaten enough because sleep doesn't tend to be a problem unless you're tired. Calories don't tend to be a problem unless body weight changes have occurred. Um, so, you know, and I don't want them to have the perception that, oh, I didn't sleep well, so training is going to be poor and it could negatively affect it. So they just do, yeah. do this little quick... Um, um, number. And then I, I use last set RPE. Um, so basically it's like a rate and reserve, uh, reps and reserve scale of how many like reps they have in the tank. And I kind of monitor that. So when I do pull back, um, typically what I'll do is I'll have them repeat the same week of training, except I'll cut the volume. So I'll either drop reps off the top set, drop sets. Um, we'll keep intensity relatively the same, but just kind of drop that workload well below one and repeating the same exercises again. 
um, and just kind of monitoring it from there and seeing if it gets regulated again. And then in the next block, so one of the like things that I like to do with load is I can take the exact same loads, but I can still change it in ways where if I pause on a squat, it's obviously more effort than if I just do a competition squat. Um, so how would an exercise like a pause squat that requires more effort at the same exact loads, how would that be measured? Would it just be more with those like external factors and last set RPE and just kind of using that as an external tool? Um, or like, how would you go about monitoring something like that? Yeah, look, I, I think RPE will, will capture some of it, but it probably won't capture all of it. Um, and, you know, essentially what you're talking about now is, is kind of time under tension, aren't you? So yes, you, exactly. Um, you could do a, something that's a, a, a four-second movement, two seconds down, two seconds up, or you could do something that's two, 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 um, as an example, um, where, where you have a two-second hold in the middle. Um, yeah, unless, unless you're, trying, you're building time into your um, – into your monitoring so you've got volume you've got the intensity and then you're, you're building some sort of time measure into it I don't I don't know that RPE will, will capture it entirely RPE is is good and um, and I, I think overall if you if you wanted to get a, an overall measure of internal load I think um, the session RPE is, is probably the best we've got to capture that with with minimal resources Um uh, apart from apart from using some sort of technology to capture capture movement speed or which is which is not as big a deal for for your sport i don't think as as it would be for some of the the, the, the true power based sports the speed based sports so um, you know correct me if i'm wrong but you want to lift you want to lift heavy um, and it doesn't necessarily matter if you if you do it slow or, or fast you just want to get that weight that heaviest weight as possible up um, and you can take your time getting it there if, if, if that's what it takes um, so you know internal load I think internal load of the athlete is probably going to be best captured by session RPE but it's still not going to to, to be the the foolproof method that that we would hope hope it to be, um, and the example I give is that you could do, um, you know, here's an example that you could have a, a, a very anabolic stimulus that comes with with power power lifting. You might do a 60 minute session at an at an RPE of five, so that gives you 300 units of load. Um, but you could do a, a 60 minute run. Uh, road run at an intensity of five, which also gives you 300 units, but it's it's far more likely to be a catabolic stimulus. Um, yet you're get, you're getting the exact same the exact same load there. So I think what, whatever session RPE you get, whatever internal loads you get from session RPE, you still need to go back to your program and say, well, what what did we actually do to achieve that load? What were we trying to achieve in terms of physiological adaptation? Uh, you brought up a good point about like the the speed so i think a lot of um 
like especially in this sport and powerlifting, velocity-based training tends to be where a lot of people are going. I think everybody wants some type of technological device to give them the answers for everything. And so Boris Shiko, I'm not sure if you're familiar with who he is, was my coach for three years. Thank so you. he's one of the, if not the most decorated powerlifting coach that's ever lived. Like he went undefeated for seven years as the team Russian national coach and world yeah. competition. He's pretty good. And he had, and yeah, he, he did all right. And he, um, he explains powerlifting as being slow power and weightlifting would be fast power, right? So there's like, a, there's a big difference. And I think one of the best analogies I've heard of um, explaining this is like a rocket ship doesn't just blast into space right away. There's a, there's a buildup process and our muscle fibers and nervous system kind of work the same way. So when we're moving maximum loads, it's not necessarily about speed. It's about being able to build up enough force um, to be able to move it. So like on a deadlift, it's not just like grip it and rip. It doesn't tend to be the, the best way to do it. It's more of this like buildup of tension and you're building acceleration as the bar breaks the ground and starts moving. Yep. Um, so I just was curious what your thoughts are about like velocity based training and how that would maybe fit in as a monitoring tool in terms of, um, load management um, based off of your understanding of the sport of powerlifting? Yeah, well, we're, we're starting to go into an area that's that's not my area of expertise, but, um, yeah, I, I know velocity-based training has become, become very popular. It's actually been um, popular for a while, but it seems to have gone full circle and, and it's become, you know, what old, what's old is new again. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I, th- I think you could probably use it to, to monitor monitor um, progression in, in your sport if, you know, based on what how you described, you know, fast power and slow power. Um, you know, it may not be something that you do in every every set, but it could be something that you that you use as, as a monitoring tool because um, we're still talking about um, a, force, a force velocity continuum um, and you know, while while you may not have to um, demonstrate the velocities of, of some of the Olympic sports or, or some of you know a, a hundred meter sprinter, there still there still is that acceleration component as you described. So there may be there may be something in there that you can use, um, and even from a training point of view, there, there could be um, ways that you could use that to to get a little bit of extra adaptation um, that, that you weren't getting otherwise um, on, the, on the speed continuum of, of uh, or, or the speed end of that force velocity continuum. So, you know, the, I wouldn't rule it out completely. Um, I still think probably um, for, the most, for the most part, you guys, you guys would probably, um, your, major, your major monitoring will come from, from what you, what you lift in, in terms of lifting heavy rather than lifting fast. But I wouldn't rule it out completely. Part of me thinks that maybe there's like a baseline for everybody. Like there may not be like, oh, we want it between these speeds, but each individual might lift at different capacities. You can figure out a baseline and perhaps maybe based off of that baseline velocity of similar weights and rep schemes, 
Um, you can kind of maybe monitor fatigue a little bit better than last set RPE. Um, but I'm not entirely sold that that's going to be the case because at some points, you know, there are times where I tell lifters specifically to slow it down so we can fix technical errors. Um, so, you know, it may work in some areas. It may not, um, in others, but you know, I know a lot of people are starting to use it and kind of like really interested in the, uh, in the topic and other people's, uh, thoughts on it. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. Um, cause I think one of the, um, misunderstood parts about load is the protective aspects of it for injury. Um, you know, if you don't do enough and then you're asked to do too much, like that's where injury risk may increase. Um, so I kind of want you to maybe talk about the protective aspects of the load management piece. Cause you know, obviously I think like a big, so with powerlifting, I think a lot of the like strength research is still, it's based around really old research, right? The Hans Seeley general adaptation syndrome where mechanical stress is kind of the, um, end all be all of stuff. So, you know, a typical, I'm just going to use like a very like basic, um, example is maybe, you know, week two loads more than week one, week three, we're trying to hit some overreaching period. And then there's this big drop off in, um, volume for, for a deload. Um, and if you actually like put some of these like numbers into the like acute chronic work ratios, you have a massive spike and a massive fall. And maybe you can explain why that may not be, or maybe it is, but the, um, best way to manage loads. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we still, we still use those kind of, um, models, um, quite, quite regularly where we, we go three and one, so up for three and, and down for one. Um, and, and the rationale is that, um, you know, you're progressively, you're progressively increasing your load over your capacity and, and then in the, in the fourth week when you, when you reduce the load, um, that's when you get super compensation. You, you go through adaptation and, and it's that recovery period that allows you to, to adapt and, and, and handle further load down the track. Uh, so we still we still use that. Um, there's a there's a, a couple of you know interesting findings, I guess, and, and um, from an injury point of view, um, what it what it seems what it seems to when we're talking about changes in load, it seems that if we can keep keep changes in load quite small, so those fluctuations in load pretty small, then um, then in general your injury risk is pretty low. And on average, when you rapidly increase load, then that and and rapidly decrease load, that tends to increase your injury risk. Um, and and essentially, the the thought is that what we're doing is we're asking we're asking our athletes to to do more than what they're prepared for when we rapidly increase their load, and and when we rapidly decrease their load, um, that that trough in load tends to be associated with injury as well uh, and I think it's probably more more likely that the trough in load increases the spike so if you think of what happens when you unload your athletes typically the next week is you you go well we've we've freshened them up we've we've unloaded them so now we can hit them hard again so we tend to spike them out of that that trough so it, it could be that the trough 
just precedes the, a, a subsequent spike. We don't really know. But what it, what it does tell us is that from an injury standpoint, uh, the body seems to handle small fluctuations in load rather than big spikes in trough, big spikes in trough in load. Um, but if we look from a performance point of view, uh, we know that uh, when you have an athlete that that has high chronic workloads, um, you can actually put them through a bit of a shock block where you, or an intensified period of training. And we know we know that shock blocks are quite effective for highly trained individuals. Probably not so so much for novices because they haven't they haven't earned the right to go through a shock block. They haven't. They haven't developed the chronic load to actually handle the, the intensified training that comes with a shock block. Um, now, those shock blocks could could result in, in quite large increases in, in load, um, which which goes against our injury um, hypothesis. Uh, it, but it actually it actually. Um, allows the athlete to, to develop greater physical capacities through going through it. So there seems to be a like a, an uncoupling point, if you like, between the load that, that increases risk and the load that um, results in increased performance. Now, I also said that if, if, we, if we reduce workloads really quickly, we go through a trough, that tends to be associated with greater injury risk. But we also know that those reductions in load are associated with, with really good performance improvements. When we unload our athletes, when we go through a taper, we, we tend to, to get a better bounce back. So again, we're seeing a, a, an uncoupling of the load injury and the load performance relationship. Um, the, the real paradox though, so that's that's when we're talking about changes in life. The real paradox is 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 what I think most people have missed in in all of this this load information. Everyone's focused on on changes in load. Everyone's focused on the acute chronic workload ratio, but everyone has missed not everyone, but a lot of people have missed the fact that high chronic workloads tend to be associated with lower injury risk. Um, and, and that's the real paradox because for a long period of time, uh, people were saying, well, you can't load too much because if you, if you load too much, if you, if you train too hard, you're going to break. But what we're actually seeing is from a, from a lot of different studies now and a lot of different sports and a lot of different research groups that if you can, if you can build to high chronic workloads and, and not do it in a day, you need to you need to build it over time, but if you can build to high chronic workloads, it actually is associated with lower injury risk. And, and that's the real paradox, that um, high chronic workloads are associated with lower injury risk, lower injury rates. And, and I think a big part of that is the fact that um, you have to load in order to withstand load. So if you take a novice and ask him to lift really heavy, um, more than what his, his current capacity is, of course you, you're going to increase the risk of that athlete. But if you can, if you can take that novice and over time um, get him to progressively lift more and more weights um, more and, and load him more and more on a gradual and systematic basis, then of course you're going to be able to handle loads of the sport at the moment. You're working towards creating the unbreakable athlete. That's that's our everyone's goal in, in sport or in, in the military or in, in the circus. We're all after that same that same endpoint. We want to have um, an unbreakable performer 
Um, and part of the way we get there is through systematically building to higher loads. I, um, I, you know, I find that like interesting that, you know, I, I remember when like I started as a coach, that whole, you know, fear of overtraining that pendulum was swinging greatly in that, in that direction. Um, as a group, we're probably, you know, in the giant scheme of things where, you know, higher frequency, um, higher volume. But like when we go into the gym, our effort is high every single time. Like I'm looking for RP eight or nine on that last set, every single top, um, like squat bench, deadlift, whatever variation we're doing. And so average, so this is weightlifting, uh, statistics cause I can't find these for powerlifting, but there's about four injuries per thousand hours. And we get well over a thousand hours with our group in a month and over a year's period of time. Um, and I coach everywhere from beginners to elite level lifters. And we missed a total of four training sessions. And most of those, they probably could have come in and still trained. So I have found like, if we're able to, like you said, work them up to baseline and never really like fluctuate too far from baseline. We can train hard almost every single time we come in the gym. And then once obviously performance starts, you start hitting that wall, we pull back hard and then we just kind of go right back into it. And we haven't had any issues. And this is something that I had noticed. Um, so I was actually, and I'm going to explain what my coach was doing, what Chico was doing before with me. And I explained it to one of my, um, networks. And that's actually how I got introduced to your stuff was when I was looking at my program, if I analyzed a long period of time, my program never got too far away from baseline, either up or down. And one of the things that really like turned me on to Chico when I was listening to him talk was in the seven years that he was coaching the Russian national powerlifting team, nobody missed a performance. Like they all made it to their um, competitions where he was winning golds all the time. So they were always healthy. They weren't getting hurt. And the program never, like I was saying, it never went too far to below baseline, but there would be days. So I would have high stress days that would be above baseline, medium stress days that would be right at baseline, and then lower stress days that would be below baseline. And what I've kind of done with that is on those, I, I keep like a similar format. So perhaps I need to change my formula to do more of um, single day monitoring of acute chronic work ratios. Um, but on those like lower stress days to keep effort higher, that's where that pause squat might come in. So we're using smaller loads on those days, but effort, effort can stay high and, you know, we'll push those to be taking, you know, an 80% double or triple with a two second pause is really freaking hard. Mm. Um, and I've just found like just by monitoring the load and managing that load, never straying too far. There are times um, that, you know, I'll, I'll push their baselines just to kind of build up that baseline. And then when we bring the comp lifts back in, I try to kind of overload volume and stuff. Um, but everything that you're saying, I've actually seen work over the last, like, I think I've been using it for a little over a year now. Um, and it's fascinating to me that, you know, I've always like, as a coach, you come up and it's like progressive overload, but where do I start and what is overload? And without like a real monitoring tool before you're just kind of like, you know, you're measuring volumes, but everybody's different. And there's so many different factors that go into that, um, that I think it's at least a good starting point. And like, I found a lot of individual differences amongst like 
what chronic workloads, like you were saying, like it's mostly just the skill level of the lifter that dictates it more than even like gender and body weight and all of those things. Um, have you found like, you know, I know there's a lot of info out there that like, you know, gender differences, weight differences and all of those things can affect work ratios. Are there any like, um, any of those types of things that you've found in your research? I haven't seen anything um, on the gender differences, but uh, you know, intuitively, it makes sense. Um, I, you know, I, I think, um, irrespective of male, female, or young or old, the, the principles are going to apply. But it's, um, but the principles of progressive overload—that's just that's just one one principle of training. You know, one of the other. Um, principles of training is um, individualization um, or, you, you know, the, the fact that people are going to respond differently to the same stress. Um, so so progressive overload is one, but then you also need to, to treat each of your athletes as an individual that um, you could have the exact same external load on the bar, uh, but the way that two different athletes respond to that external load could be completely different and it could be completely different on two different days. Um, so there's, there's a, you know, it's uh, the whole the whole training process is you can make it as, as simple as com- or as complex as you like. Um, and um, the, the more you delve into it, um, I think the the more the more complicated it is. Um, but we still need to to come back to some some simple principles. Otherwise, we'd get lost in it, or we, you know, no one had ever trained because it'd be just too hard. So you, you just you, you try and look at okay, well, what are some common principles that I can apply here? One is is progression, progressive overload. What is the current capacity? What what can they handle now? Okay, and uh, so what is their floor? That's what I'm talking about. What is the floor, and where do I need to get them to? What is their ceiling? What, what is what is the ceiling that I'd like to get them to? And then the third is uh, how much time? How much time do I have to get them from the floor to the ceiling? Once you know that those things, then you can progress a program appropriately. And when we're talking about individualization, um, that's that's where you take your your load and capacity measures that you already have, your acute and chronic load, but then you also tie that together with your your wellness score, which is your energy score. You know, if you don't want to worry about uh, sleep or stress or get them thinking about those things and thinking they can't train hard, then just stick with your energy score. And I, th- I think that's a, a really good one because it, it, um, it works in your environment. And, and that is kind of like your health score. When they're, when they're low on energy, then that might impact on, on the load that you put on the bar for that day because you're through talking with your athlete, you're, you're thinking, well, we'll just, we'll just see how their capacity is today because it could be that their capacity is a little bit low. It could be that they can, they can get themselves right, you know, that they start with poor energy and they actually build into the, the session. By the end of the session, they're lifting well. Um, or it could be that, as you as the session goes on, you see that they're not changing. So, so that the decision that you made to reduce the load was actually a good decision. Part of it's based on feel. Part of it's based on the numbers that you're collecting. Um, and that's again, it comes back to some some scientific principles of training. But you're you're tying the art in with that science. Um, so yeah, look in terms of. In terms of what you found with high, higher loads being, you know, you can, you've lost 
four sessions over a thousand hours, those injury rates are very, very low. And um, you know, four four injuries per thousand. That's that's that's. I mean, we see a lot of that in the in the weight room. We don't see a lot of injuries in the weight room, really. Um, uh, because um, when 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 athletes are taught to lift properly, uh, it, it just doesn't it doesn't happen, and actually they t- they tend to move better, and and that that strength training stimulus actually has a has an independent protective effect as well. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of funny though because um, the more people I talk to about it, including myself, um, when you when you talk about it, you know the science is kind of confirming what. What we've known for a long period of time. If I if I talk to my father about it, um, you know, his common response is, um, "Well, great, Tim's Tim's doing science about stuff that we already know." You know, he's, he's just confirming he's confirming that we've known what we've known for fifty years, um, and and a lot of a lot of the you know my older friends who are around the sixty and seventy year old uh, age age bracket. They've known it for years. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, um, you know, so when we talk about what's old becoming new again, this is this is probably another example of uh, they may not have had the science to back it up when they were training, but but they they know it as as well as they know the science or, or the art of that science as well as we know it. Um, that that harder training is actually puts you in a in a position where you're actually prepared for what's about to come. I think a lot of the like older populations, they kind of figured this stuff out from trial and error and doing it themselves. And like science just kind of proved what they believed to be true yeah. uh, later on um, I've a, with progressive overload. So if you're looking at your athletes um, and we know we have to do more than we did before in order to um, get the adaptations that we're looking for. Um so we, you know, the acute chronic work ratio looks at things in like a much smaller scale. So, you know, three to six weeks in the giant scheme of a training year is a, a pretty small mm. piece. Um, so for each competition, do you think they need to do more than they did for the previous competition or we just need to stress current baselines in order to drive those adaptations? Because some of the things that I found with like my lifters is there even, you know, no matter what level they're at is, and I think there's like a lot of other stuff here, like, you know, we can change predictive processes of the brain and how motor control works by use, utilizing proper exercises to fix technique and everything else. Um, but I found at times that like, I don't necessarily need to stress volumes as much as I did before to get even better adaptations. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know there's always that sweet spot and that sweet spot's always on a sliding scale. But is there like a larger viewpoint of progressive overload or is it just always kind of just because the body adapts to what's ever in front of it? So maybe eight weeks, you know, we almost go through this deconditioning and then we get geared up for another competition. And when we're getting geared up, the volumes can be more than it was, you know, the block or two before, but maybe not four or five blocks before and we can still see adaptations. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a few a few questions in there. I, I guess uh, if we're talking about if we're talking about load, uh, every everyone's going to have a ceiling of load. So if I if I said to you, um, is is one minute of training going to be enough to prepare you for one minute of training a week going to be enough to prepare you for a powerlifting competition? Uh, you, you would probably say no. 
Um, and if I said to you, okay, well, what about if we train seven days a week for 24 hours a day? Is that going to be too much? You'd probably say yes. So, so there's there's the um, extreme floor and ceiling for your sport. Now, the reality is we can squeeze that up together a, a lot better to get a better um, a better idea of what is the true floor that we need to maintain, what is the true ceiling that we don't really need to exceed. Every every athlete has a ceiling of load that um, at, at, at a given point in time, we probably can't squeeze more load load on top. Now, we can we can uh, modify load or adjust load through changes in, in frequency, through changes in, in volume and changes in intensity. So you can get you can get adaptations uh, in your athlete through through changing any of those things. And and sometimes improving capacity improving capacity doesn't always mean increasing load. Um, so it could be that you can improve capacity through through pulling back on other factors. So it could be that somehow you build more recovery into your into your program, which which there by doing that improves the health and, and without changing load at all, you suddenly impre- increase capacity. Um, so that's that's when you know you're probably at that top end where you you're looking for those fine adjustments in your training program. Um, and, and somehow you've managed to increase capacity without actually increasing load. All you've done is, is pull back on one of those health levers. Um, in, in terms of, you know, that three to six week window, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a guide only. Um, you, you, some people use a, a much longer period of time. Some people use a, a six-week six window. Other people use a 12-week window. If you're, if you're a... a triathlete you may it may take you a lot longer to 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 change capacity because you're working at such a high level of your current capacity um so to get those changes uh, they're they're generally small changes and they take a longer period of time to get Um, so it could be that you you look at chronic load over a longer period of time Um, so you know depending on how long it takes to to change um, a physical quality in your athlete, um, you may change those windows. So, you, for example, for a novice athlete, you might work on a four-week window because you know you're going to get adaptation pretty quickly. Uh, but for a um, and a very experienced lifter, maybe use a, a little bit longer bit, um, window because you know that it's going to take a little bit longer to, to get even small adaptations. Um, and the, the exact window, I don't really know. Um, I know that some people look at um, one week as an acute, um, four to six weeks as a as a chronic, and then they they look at a or a, a, a midterm chronic, and then they they use a twelve week window as a long term chronic as well. Um, so there's there's different ways of you know, everywhere I go, people are using little little modifications of of uh, the acute and chronic loading profiles to, to get the information that they feel is going to be useful for them. I think like, you know, and I even get into this, this thought process. Like you want, I want the acute chronic workloads and the, the volumes and the average relative intensities, the number of lifts. I want that to be able to easily dictate, predict and reproduce results on a continual basis, but that'll probably never be the case because as humans, we're super complex. <laughs> um, I, I have this like one 
like, so we're, we're talking about volume ceilings, right? And like one of the things that, you know, the Eastern Bloc countries have is they have recommended volumes based off of gender, body weight, and total. So there'll be, you know, like, so somebody like Chico has a recommended number of lifts at average relative intensities based off of those parameters. Now here in America, um, when I look at lifters profile, so if I, I categorize them, their volumes tend to be much higher than the recommended volumes that you would um, see in Eastern Bloc countries. So do you think that training where we're maxing out volumes that are probably higher than our skill levels and these groups of lifters do experience higher rates of injury. So, you know, that's always, always an issue, but let's say that, sorry, the Eastern Bloc countries have more injuries or the less. So the ones that, the ones that I see here that stress volumes above those recommended numbers tend to have higher, higher injury rates. Yeah. Um, however, some of them get really strong, really fast, right? The body's amazingly adapted. So you put a lot of volume in front of it gets really strong. Do you think there is, if somebody reaches their volume ceiling too fast, that there could be a cap on their long-term performance? Like maybe they peak too soon in their careers where if we had stretched this out over a longer period of time and we gradually increased volume and hit that ceiling, let's even say a couple of years further down the road, that performance would be much higher then than it would be if we just tried to stretch those volumes to that ceiling as fast as humanly possible? Uh, that's a great question. And, and uh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a definitive answer. I'd be guessing. Um, but here's my best scientific guess. I think, I think if, we, if we rapidly if we rapidly look for that adaptation and, and then we're uh, potentially increasing risk or if, you, if, you've, if you've said that, you know, injury rates tend to be higher, um, what, what we know then is, is that the biggest, the, the biggest predictor of, of subsequent injury is the fact that you've been injured before. So, so what happens is uh, at, the, at the same load – Injury becomes a moderator. It becomes um, if you have a, have a short injury history, say in the Eastern Bloc countries, then you're able to to tolerate the exact same load a lot better than if you have a long injury history. If you have a long injury history and and load that person, potentially it increases their risk of further injury, which which over a long period of time means they can't they if they're injured they can't train. So their training history or their chronic load drops down. And if they can't train, they can't get strong. So, And if you're not strong, that improves or increases your chance of getting injured again. So it's a bit of a cycle that way, which potentially could um, decrease decrease your career length or decrease the chance to, to go deeper into your career with um, you know, you hit your peak, as you say, you hit your peak early. That's, that's kind of my... my Best scientific guess is explaining. I haven't seen any any long term data to, to back that up, but that's kind of my, my scientific rationale around it. Yeah, I'm not like I, I looked for this. So I heard this story of so Detmar Wolf when he was um, coaching the Norwegian power lifting team. So like the higher frequency training was starting to like really take over at this time for them. Um, he had a lifter who is this. Carl Christensen was literally the best lifter on the planet at the time. And if you watch his attempts, 
So his third attempt squat looks like an opener. And I had heard from other lifters that were on the team with him at the time that Carl always wanted to be pushed harder um, by Wolf, but his coach was just like, you know, no, now is not the time to push harder. He was 23 years old at the time. Also, uh, he was a super heavyweight and you know, he was afraid that if he pushed him too hard, that his career would be limited. So I don't know if he was referring to injury or if he was referring to a performance ceiling. Um, so, you know, I was just kind of curious what your take on a situation like that would be. Cause that really got like my wheels turning and thinking more about, you know, I know we look at stuff on like a smaller scale of volumes, but on like a much larger scale, like over the career of the lifter, um, when we discuss the timing of things and, uh, I don't know if it's even possible for research to be done because of the, the timing aspect of it. Um, but I think it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, look, it is. Look, in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, maximizing, um, Maximising the, the the time for for growth and physiological adaptation. Uh, it's if he's twenty three years of age, it's it's probably not a bad a bad time to push a little harder in that period um, because he's he's probably through that period where he's at risk of bone stress injuries, um, and you know he's he's still in a period where he can he can get some great strength gains, um, and and this is this is always the. You know the 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 trick with coaching, isn't it? Do we do we push a little harder and, and squeeze a little bit extra volume out, or do we go? No, look, um, that's actually enough for today. We've we've achieved what we wanted to achieve. All, all we're doing by by adding another set or another couple of sets is adding fatigue that's not necessary. Um, so and it's yeah it's kind of well it depends a little bit on your philosophy because I I have worked with some coaches who are very much uh, quality focused uh, the the total volume is very low but everything they do is is um, high quality with a lot of rest in between efforts and then I've worked with with other coaches who. Um, you know, have a, a mindset of um, we're always we always have the mindset of doing one more rather than one less, and um, you know it's hard to say who's right and who's wrong because um, at different at different phases, both of those programs can work and both those programs can get, can get good um, good results. Um, so it's uh, <laughs> I don't know that there's any definitive answer on, and and as you say, it's a very It'd be very hard to do that research because it'd be such such a long term research. Um, you do see some of that kind of research in different sports in in countries like Norway and cross country skiing, where where people have uh, analysed the results of really good athletes over the duration of their career, and that's that's pretty cool research because you're actually seeing what they've done throughout their entire career, how they've built load systematically from year to year, not just um, cycle to cycle? Um, You know, I think you brought up a good point too, where like, you know, you don't know which system is best, right? But I think like a sport like powerlifting or any sport in general, like different systems, they're big enough where different systems can work, but I think it all just comes down to how well the coach is capable of managing those systems and all the other, um, 
stuff that we were talking about, you know, like when to push a lifter, when to back off, when technique's important, when to increase load, when to decrease load. I think it's just, it becomes that art of coaching, um, making sure, you know, you have a system in place that follows principles, but you're able to, you know, between with the art of coach and the eye of an experienced coach, be able to navigate that program effectively in order to get the results you're looking for. I think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to anyways. And yeah, you know, yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. If you, if you get uh, too bogged down in the numbers, you get paralyzed by it and, and you wouldn't do any coaching at all. Um, so I'm, I'm a really big believer in, um, you know, learn, learning your sport um, and trusting your eyes, um, trusting your guts and, and using the numbers to, to kind of support your decision making but not to replace your expert eye um, because that's still a really important part of your sport. I, I think that is a perfect place to end on to Tim. I greatly appreciate you coming on here. I was excited to talk to you. Um, I, I love your stuff. It's been a game changer for me um, and my team of lifters. Uh, let everybody know where they can find your stuff on the internet. I know you, you post occasionally on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, um, you can, you can follow, you can follow the stuff on social media. Most, mostly it's, um, just the, the research that comes out or, um, but you know, most of the, the workshops we do and, um, you know, the idea is to help, help coaches, help other practitioners, um, with, with their, um, their monitoring. So, uh, from my point of view, it's, uh, it's a waste of time just, um, having, having this research, in a in a journal article or a textbook that, that a handful of people will read. So, um, and they're pretty hard to read some of those papers. So I'd much prefer to have a conversation with people. Uh, so they can, they can visit, um, my website, gabbitperformance.com and that'll have, you know, little blogs and, um, information workshops and all the different, different things that we offer for first, um, practitioners around the world. Awesome. And guys, make sure you follow me. It's KWCAN. Follow our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.